Welcome to Vendee Radio. Tonight is a great privilege to be here with both uh, Dr. Sebastian Morello and Mr. Jamie Bogle. And this evening we're going to talk about clericalism, the vexed and thorny issue of clericalism, which is one of Pope Francis's favourite themes and one of the dangers that he regularly singles out as threatening to the church. Just last week, in his Angelus address, he said, quote, Today we see clericalism in many places, this being above the humble, exploiting and beating them, feeling perfect. This is the evil of clericalism. It's a warning for all times, church and society. Never take advantage of your position to crush others, end quote. Said without uh, a hint of irony there. Um, and he's spoken about clericalism many times. Um, I think the closest definition, closest thing to a definition he he uh, he gave was in a homily in Casa Santa Marta in December 2016. He said, "There is a spirit of clericalism in the church. Clerics feel superior. Clerics distance themselves from the people. Uh, clerics always say this should be done like this, like this, and you go away." It happens when the cleric doesn't have time to listen to those who are suffering, the poor, the sick, the imprisoned. The evil of clericalism is a re really awful thing. It is a new edition of this ancient evil. But the victim is the same, the poor and humble people who await the Lord. Um, so we're going to, to kind of disentangle this issue, uh, talk about clericalism in its tendential and heretical forms. And to do that, I'm joined by, as I say, Mr. James Bogle, who is a barrister practicing in the Inner Temple London, where he is deputy head of chambers. He also writes and broadcasts on historical, constitutional and religious themes in the UK and the US. He's been a lecturer in medical law at St. George's Hospital Medical School and a tutor in advocacy at the Middle Temple. In the Catholic world, he's been for many years chairman of the Catholic Union and President of the International Univoce Federation, Chairman of the UK Catholic Forum, a Director of EWTN UK, a lay trustee of Farnborough Abbey and a Knight of Malta. Um, I'm also rejoined by Dr. Sebastian Morello, recently uh, re having received his doctorate and with one or two publications under his belt. He holds a BA in philosophy from the Open University and 
an MA and PhD in philosophy from the University of Buckingham, where he was trained uh, by Sir Roger Scruton. He's currently a lecturer, columnist, and populist public speaker on both sides of the Atlantic. His writing has been featured in the Catholic Herald and the Catholic World Report, and he currently works as the essays editor for the European Conservative, which is also a columnist and wine reviewer. He was also recently elected a fellow at the Department of Politics at Princeton University, which is a post he will take up next year. He is the author of The World as God's Icon, published last year by Angelico Press, and a contributing author of From Benedict's Peace to France's War, also published by Angelico Press uh, just this month. So, gentlemen, welcome to Vendée Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So to begin, and uh, to begin with uh, uh, looking at this issue of clericalism with the definition, because it seems to be slightly nebulous here. Um, my first question to you, Mr. Bogle, and then we can have uh, Dr. Morello's contribution, is for your understanding of what clericalism is and how it is manifest in the church today. Well, let me first say I, <clears throat> I don't have, hold any of those positions that you uh, uh, kindly uh, introduced me with. I'm no longer Chamber of the Catholic Union. I'm not Deputy Head of Chambers, and I'm not President of Innovation anymore. So I'm, these are purely my own personal opinions, and I'm not speaking on behalf of any organisation. Uh, I want to make that clear, just in case anybody is in any doubt, uh, because uh, other people will have differing opinions. Um, but um, I think clericalism is a big problem in the church today. It has been for a long time. And for various reasons, which we can explore in the, in the course of this uh, discussion. Um, <clears throat> first of all, um, you will find on the internet all sorts of differing definitions of clericalism. Uh, and to add to the mix, there is the Pope's own uh, definition of clericalism, um, which I don't think is anything like complete. It's not enough just to say clerics, uh, it, it's when clerics feel they are superior or far away from people. Uh, and uh, are not you know, caring for the uh, the dispossessed and marginalised. No, it's a lot more complicated than that. Clericalism is where the clergy, uh, in its worst form, consider themselves to be almost a class apart. A bit like I like I sometimes liken it, although it's not 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 really the same. It has similarities with the class of perfecti in the Manichaean heretical sect, who think that they are. Um, well, as the name implies, perfect. But uh, as we, as the, the church of the time discovered, the perfecti were very far from perfect. They were thoroughly corrupt, morally, financially, and in all sorts of different ways. But they felt they were above the moral law because they were the perfecti uh, of, the, uh, of the movement. I, I remind people that the Manichaeans pretended to be Christians and part of the Catholic Church. They were nothing of the kind, of course. They were they held uh, thoroughly uh, uh, anti-Catholic and indeed inhuman uh, ideas. Um, uh, and that uh, example of, of perfecty is, is, is but one. Um, it's not as, uh, clericalism in the modern church, of course, is nothing as, is not as bad as that, but it, it's just by way of illustration to give you the flavor of what clericalism is. But it's a disordered attitude toward the clergy, an excessive deference, and an assumption by them of their moral, intellectual, and spiritual superiority, and of their belief that they uh, that they 
are above the laity and that the laity are, if you like, their inferiors hierarchically and in every other way, and that uh, it is um, outside the competence of the laity to make any critical comments about the clergy. Uh, this is not yet a defined heresy, but it quite clearly is a, a very grave and serious error. Unfortunately, it's a grave and serious error which is causing a lot of damage to the church today, uh, <clears throat> not least uh, in obvious ways that have manifested itself in the last uh, 30 odd years or perhaps more. Uh, the most egregious example being um, clerical um, abuse, clerical pederasty, uh, abuse of children. Uh, this is an example where the clergy are so sure of their own moral, intellectual and spiritual superiority uh, that they burst the bounds uh, of uh, even of the most elementary moral uh, uh, moral teachings. Uh, and it is very hard to imagine a graver infringement of the moral law than for a cleric, a particularly a cleric of the Catholic Church, to abuse a child. Uh, so that is the worst manifestation, I think, of clericalism in, uh, in our time. Uh, and on this point, um, uh, the Pope would probably agree with me. But that's not the only area where clericalism has been a problem. Um, somebody once said to me, a clerical friend of mine, uh, when I was first a member of the church, first joining the church a long time ago now, Oh, well, the clergy are like the officers. The religious are like the NCOs in an army. And the laity are like the private soldiers. It would be hard for me to find a better example of rank, rampant clericalism than that particular analogy. Hmm. And there are a lot of clergy, and not least among the bishops. And I'm afraid I have to say also the Pope himself who tend to share that view of the clergy. Now, how has this come about? And I think if we discover how it's come about, we discover why it exists in the modern world. And it's not a creature, as some people would say, of the Second Vatican Council, which was meant to be a council that was strongly opposed to clericalism. Um, it, it, it originates uh, long before the Vatican Council. Uh, and in my view, just my view, I think it, it originates with the fall of the Catholic political powers. Um, because in the days when we had in Europe largely Catholic um, states go governed by Catholic rulers under a Catholic constitution in accordance with Catholic principles and the Bible, nobody asked what is the role of the laity? Uh, nobody asked or said, <clears throat> well, perhaps some people did, <clears throat> um, that you know, the clergy are our officers and we are the NCOs and privates. Uh, and I challenge or dare anybody to find an example of, the, uh, of an Archbishop of Vienna or Krakow or any of those Eastern cities saying to the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, well, you're only a private in the church, I'm the officer, because he would have laughed them to scorn. Everybody knew 
the emperor was the emperor and his archbishop was, if you like, his chaplain, not his superior. So it all goes back to the ancient, ancient debate about the relationship between church and state. Now, that created a whole series of problems of its own, which we can uh, perhaps explore a bit later on, uh, and resulted in differences, as we know, between lay leaders and clerical leaders, and the investiture contest and the decree clericis laicos and uh, many another dispute between emperors and popes, kings and popes, kings and bishops, St. You know, Thomas Beckett, but equally corrupt popes like Pope John XII and so on. But the problem for the modern world is that after the First World War, which was a war orchestrated largely by people who were hostile to Christian states, uh, and they were successful in their aim, at the cost, one might add, of millions upon millions of young lives, they were ultimately successful in expunging at least the most important Christian uh, states in Europe and replacing them with increasingly secular states. Now, once you no longer have uh, Christian rulers uh, and Christian states, uh, uh, and particularly those of any size, then you begin to wonder, or at least have the issue raising its head as to, well, so in this modern world where secularism is, 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 is increasingly taking over, what is the role of the Catholic laity? You would never have asked that when there was a Catholic emperor or a Catholic king. But when they have gone, and not just kings, but also doges and you know um, heads of the maritime republics and so on, when they're gone, well, then you have to ask, people ask, what is exactly the role of the laity in the modern age? And it's no accident that after the First World War, um, one began to see more and more tracts, pamphlets, and even books written on the subject of the lay vocation. Nobody asked the, uh, the rulers of Christendom in the Middle Ages, what is the lay vocation? Because it was pretty, pretty obvious, it was staring them in the face. Uh, they would simply say, well, I am the lay vocation. <laughs> I'm the king here, or the local council or the local whatever it is, uh, they were the Catholic laity doing what the Catholic laity is supposed to do. Now, the role of the Catholic laity is to, um, is to uh, try to conform the temporal order, which of course is virtually impossible in a secular state, uh, conform the temporal order to the teaching of Christ. That's the role of the Catholic laity. The role of the Catholic clergy is to teach, to govern, and uh, uh, to sanctify the church. Govern spiritually, not temporarily. Now, when the lay side of the equation has disappeared, that's when you start to uh, get people asking, well, what is the lay vocation? Now, there are all sorts of answers to that in the modern world, but it opened the door to clericalism, because in the church, the laity who would once have had uh, very considerable power and authority, uh, kings and emperors in, in Christendom had not just temporal powers, but they had all sorts of spiritual privileges and powers over the appointment of bishops and archbishops, uh, over the uh, 
founding and establishing of new churches, monasteries, dioceses. These were all uh, matters within the power and competence of the Christian rulers. One group of people who were able to make those decisions on the face of it, at any rate, and that's the clergy. And that is what happened. Now, once upon a time, uh, kings and emperors would be consulted, if not indeed have the direct power, of appointing uh, bishops, archbishops, prelates, abbots, and others, uh, where there wasn't already a constitutional provision for them to be elected by the, canon, the chapter of canons or by the uh, by the by the, the monks of a, of a, of a monastery. Um, so they had considerable powers, which they were able to exercise. Of course, ultimately, it had to be sanctioned by the Pope if it was a sufficiently superior appointment. That's now that once that's gone, the immediate, if you like, default position. Now, they could be, of course, a non-default position, but that's never been explored. The immediate default position is, oh, well, the emperor and the king no longer make these appointments. So I guess the Pope will have to do it. And so that is why you have seen since 1918, 1919 perhaps, more and more Episcopal appointments being removed from the local church to Rome. So that we now arrive at a position where virtually all major appointments of archbishops are in theory decided by the congregation of bishops in Rome, which is flatly contrary to the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, which says the decisions should be made at the lowest level where they can be. So the Catholic Church is already uh, in its own appointments uh, uh, mechanism, defying its own teaching. There it is. Uh, of course, we know that that's happening on all sorts of fronts, but there's yet another. Uh, and so the, the temptation for the clergy to think, well, our job is to run the church and the laity have no say whatever, is inevitably very great. And that is what has happened. But now, it's now regarded almost as so much of a default position as to be, in the minds of a lot of ordinary Catholics, and particularly in the minds of a lot of bishops, to have reached the status, in their minds, of Catholic doctrine. Because it's not Catholic doctrine at all. It's the very opposite of Catholic doctrine. It's heresy or if not actual heresy, serious error. But that is where we are at. And if you were to ask most archbishops and bishops, um, well, who has the ultimate say in the church? They would say, well, the clergy, of course. But it, was never, it, wasn't, it wasn't thus for most of the church's history. Uh, and for most of the church's history, most popes, in fact, I think I could almost say all popes, would certainly not have taught that or agreed with that. But now it's almost a default position. Now that opens the door to naked, blatant clericalism. Because uh, so much so that you now have a situation where the clergy, the senior clergy, not only do they think they have the right and the sole right to exercise power in the church without consulting anybody, but, and this is the ultimate acme of clericalism to do so without reference to the church's own body of canon law so that you will have popes even but certainly bishops and archbishops 
and even habits, just making decisions completely oblivious and in defiance of them, in, in some cases, of uh, the law of the church, the canon law of the church, which is, of course, illegal, unconstitutional, and in some cases, criminal. And yet that's what they do. And I mean criminal within the context of canon law. But unfortunately, clericalism has got so bad that they'll even do things that are criminal in the civil law. Example, of course, being clerical abuse and the hiding of clerical abuse by bishops and archbishops. These are very serious manifestations, among other diseases, of clericalism. So that's a sort of quick roundup of where it's come from and what it is, in my book, at any rate. Thank you very much, Mr. Bogle, for that. If you agree. Very comprehensive perspective, uh, very informative. Uh, Dr. Morello, do you have any remarks to add to that? Well, <clears throat> um, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything um, that uh, Mr. Bogle has said. Um, and I hope we can return to this topic of the absence of accountability um, among the clergy. It's a very interesting topic uh, at the level of these great crimes that are even uh, crimes in, in, in civil law. But, but, um, but also it's very interesting regarding what is happening to the church's uh, doctrinal and liturgical heritage uh, at the moment. Uh, now, I think this goes back to, so I, I'll try to offer what I think is the broadest possible definition of clericalism, uh, broad in that I think it encompasses the, it, it, it encompasses everything, uh, uh, but at a very superficial level. Um, and it would be interesting to know if Mr. Bogle agrees with this definition. I would say that clericalism is identifying the church with the clergy rather than with the whole faithful. That's what I would say clericalism, most broadly speaking, is. And, um, and, and from that definition, you can very quickly see, again, speaking to Mr. Bogle's point, how the division and ultimately the separation of, uh, of, of powers within the church takes place, namely the lay and spiritual powers of the church, to the detriment of, uh, of the temporal power. Now, um, once the church is identified with the clergy rather than the whole faithful, then I think what you get is uh, it was referred to earlier as this problem of the perfecti, and I think that's right. What, what you get is a kind of Gnosticism. You get a kind of Gnosticism where, because the church is identified with this one group, uh, this, this, this uh, one division of the church, they are the only division that have uh, access to the true knowledge of the faith. And... Um, uh, the the reception of the faith isn't received by the church it's received only by this division and very quickly they become uh if you like they start to think of themselves as authors of that uh faith rather than the servants of that faith 
and uh, and then you do get this this uh, Gnostic the the faith becomes corrupted into um, no longer you know Newman for example went to great pains in in the Grammar of Ascent to demonstrate that the faith of the Irish granny at the back of the church praying her rosary was the same faith as the faith of Thomas Aquinas, right? That, that it's the same faith that, that all the faithful share. But within the, uh, uh, and I think Mr. Bagel's right to call it the heresy of clericalism. Within the heresy of clericalism, what you end up with is uh, the faith being corrupted into essentially a secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge, the laity are only to receive in drips and drabs from the uh, from the clerical hierarchy, and um, and if the, if suddenly what we believed to be the faith is suddenly the next day not, or something that we knew not to be the faith is suddenly being called the faith the next day, the laity are just expected to accept it because we're being told this by the people who are the only possessors of this secret knowledge, and that is Gnosticism. And 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 I think I think it, it's a it's a helpful um, it's a helpful if you like game to play to to think of clericalism as a species of Gnosticism because I think that gets you very close to what you're actually dealing with. Um, now, uh, in our own age, this point of the essentially the denial of the lay apostolate has manifested itself in really interesting ways. Um, and I think that we see this liturgically. So whereas I was always told that, isn't it wonderful that the laity are now involved in the, the liturgy and they can say things from the pews or they can carry the cruets up or they, could e they can pick hymns and they can, you know, they can even stand in the sanctuary and read the readings. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? But actually, it's not wonderful. It's extremely insulting. And the reason it's insulting is because if that is what the lay apostolate is, then the lay apostolate is the aping of uh, the ordained by the unordained. The, lay the laity don't have a, a mission of their own. Their role is to, um, is to grovel before the clergy to be allowed to dress up or take on some of their duties rather than actually having an apostolate of our own. And that's, uh, and that's uh, I, think, uh, I, think, I think there are aspects of uh, mainstream liturgical life in the Catholic Church that are actually directly humiliating uh, uh, of the laity. Um, and I think uh, on the historical point, one thing that I think has given rise to a culture of clericalism within the Catholic Church is the clericalization of the religious orders. And, I, and, and this hasn't been touched upon yet. And may, maybe we can explore this a little bit together in a minute, but um, this is a very interesting thing. And it's important because now we don't see monks and nuns and friars as perhaps you would have seen walking down the street in, in, in medieval Christendom, for example. They, they're often absent from our mind and we don't, we don't think of them uh, when we think of the church, 
but actually the consecrated religious are the heart of the church. The consecrated religious uh, are... Uh, it, 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 we, we use the word calling a lot at, today, and, and we use the word vocation a lot. And we say the vocation to marriage, the vocation to priesthood, the vocation to the NHS, the vocation to... You know, we use a vocational... But actually, the... The sacraments of initiation lead to the sacraments of mission. And the, those sacraments are, uh, if you like, they are, um, they, they, the sacraments of mission are marriage and, 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 and priesthood. And so to be married as, as a lay person making a family and, and so on and, and, and sanctifying the domestic arena, or to become a priest, these are normative to the baptized state. Consecrated life is not. Consecrate, you need a special calling from Jesus Christ into spousal union with him, into the, into the vows, the evangelical councils. And uh, that can be within the clerical state or as a lay person, right? It, it, it can be either. Now, over time we have started to think of religious life as a division of the clerical state. Uh, I, I personally actually think it's rather unfortunate that, um, that women who have taken the evangelical uh, councils are, are referred to as second-order religious, because in a way they are, they, their vocation is the highest. They, they enjoy a spousal, uh, a, a bridal relationship with Jesus Christ that is not fitting for uh, first order religious. So really they are the first order religious. Now, even the, uh, what we call the first order religious uh, in the church, um, this is not a clerical state. Um, the, uh, Saint Benedict was a layman. Saint John Cashin, one of the greatest interpreters of religious life, insisted that um, uh, to be ordained to the priesthood was exceptional for the religious state. What you, uh, the, the reason why you became a religious was to uh, enter into the mystical life of consecration, not uh, to, to be a priest. But the first orders uh, have almost exclusively been taken over uh, as, as, um, as divisions of the clerical hierarchy. If you go to a Benedictine monastery, contrary to the councils of Benedict and John Cashin, you will find that pretty much every monk in the monastery is ordained uh, to, to the priesthood. Um, now, uh, you might say, well, this was inevitable with the rise of the friars, because the friars had to go from place to place preaching. But actually, that's not what St. Francis thought. St. Francis, who was never ordained to the priesthood, uh, did not think that they were going... Um, from place to place preaching from the pulpits in a liturgical context, they were street preachers preaching in the squares as lay people who were consecrated. In fact, uh, um, St. Dominic, who founded the Order of Preachers, who was, uh, who was a priest because he was a, he was a canon regular uh, under Augustine, uh, under the, uh, following the rule of St. Augustine prior to founding the, the Dominicans, um, uh, when he wrote the first constitution, he had it that, that no one 
uh, ordained to the priesthood could hold hold an office of government within the order of preachers. Now, I, I have heard uh, Dominicans say, well, we're the order of preachers, so we are by, uh, by nature a clerical institute. Well, that's not what St. Dominic thought. St. Dominic thought that they were lay preachers going from town to town preaching in the streets and squares. Uh, now, um, this, I think, gets increasingly confused in the 16th century when you do have the rise of these so-called clerical orders like the Jesuits and then the Redemptorists and so on. But I think that this is a... Um, uh, I, I think that this is uh, very unfortunate. And now we have this really strange situation where if you are a third order member of a religious order, you are referred to as, for example, a lay Dominican or a lay Franciscan, as if the second order religious, the, the women, are not laity, and as if the brothers of the first order religious are not laity. Well, what are they then? Well, the idea is that they're these kind of, they're kind of wannabe priests who joined the first order but never quite made it. And they're increasingly treated like that as well. And so um, uh, th this is, th we've, got, we've got all of this confused. And, and the, uh, the, these, are, these, these are not really, I'm, I, when I say these things, I'm not dealing with the root of the problem, but I'm just trying to present some of the symptoms of um, the clericalist uh, catastrophe uh, in the church. So uh, I think that's my, my two pennies worth for now. Well, I, I agree entirely. Uh, <clears throat> the only thing I would say is that um, there is a sense in which the, both the parish priest and the male religious are also in a spousal relationship because they are married in a, in a sense to the church, um, whereas, uh, which is, of course, a more abstract idea than, than uh, the women religious who are who are spouses of christ um but yeah, i mean the, the, when you have the mystical marriage of Teresa of avila or catherine of siena it, it's not the priestly notion of being uh, a bride of the of, of the of the church it, it, it really is um to be a bride of jesus christ well that's right and, but, yeah. but he, equally there are you know there are mystical marriages among male male religious with the church if you study some of the, the saints. So uh, it's uh, what that tends to do is emphasize the difference between the sexes, which is of course nowadays uh, very much under attack, is under attack because um, it's an attack on God because God ordained that there should be the, the two sexes and, and nature ordained it as well. But of course, I dare say somebody uh, listening to this is going to heavily criticize me for being, uh, um, well, I don't know what, but anyway, that's, that's the teaching of the church, but um, uh, and it, and for a very good reason um, because um, these represent two aspects of God, male and female. As it says in the Bible, male and female, He created them, not um, you know, pi and q and z and, and and whatever they now use as various um, gender-specific terms. Uh, he created them because those are two aspects of God, and together. They make up uh, a whole, which, uh, when when the whole is perfect, represents God. Now, um, I but I entirely agree with what um, Sebastian is saying, um, and indeed, by the way, um, so does Saint Thomas. Um, if you go to the Summa, 
um, to um, his father and someone dealing with really the state of perfection in general, um, which is question 184, so the second part of the second part, uh, Article 8, he asks the question in the familiar film that we know, um, whether parish priests and archdeacons are more perfect than religious? The answer is no. Um, the usual objections say yes, and he says, on the contrary, it is stated in, um, uh, he makes, he quotes a source, um, if a man while governing the people in his church under the bishop leading a secular life is inspired by the Holy Ghost to desire to work out his salvation in a monastery or under some canonical rule, since he is led by a private law, there is no reason why he should be constrained by public law. And that's uh, quoting from a, a decretal. Now, a man is not led by the law of the Holy Ghost, which is here called a private law, except to something more perfect. Therefore, it's, it would seem that religious are more perfect than archdeacons or parish priests. And of course, he goes on then to say why. The reason is because they devote and dedicate the whole of their lives to Christ uh, in the evangelical councils, which a parish priest or an archdeacon is not obliged to do and does not do. He dedicates himself to the church, to provide the sacraments, to teach, to, to govern and to sanctify, but not the whole, every aspect of his body and soul in the evangelical councils. I might add the evangelical councils are also widely misunderstood uh, and if people understood them they wouldn't fall into the era of clericalism people now um, a lot of you know simple people and non-catholics as well as catholics but mostly catholics it seems think that the perfection of um, uh, of the christian life is to be a priest well of course that is obvious nonsense because if that were true it would exclude half the human race in other words all women uh, because they can't be priests uh, of course, there are people within the church who say they can be priests, but then they have simply misunderstood what the priestly role is. Priestly role is a paternal role, not a maternal role, the same way that motherhood is a maternal role, not a paternal role. Um, but uh, again, you know, um, we, uh, we are reaching into confusion in modern times where we can't any longer understand these things. Um, but the, um, uh, the religious state applies equally to men and women but with differences as sebastian has rightly said uh particularly in relation to the, the spousal um but there's huge amounts of confusion about that as well uh not helped i might add by the um codex of canon law which tries to and i might add it's not just the 1983 code the 1917 code uh, in my view starts to move in this direction uh, and, and tries to categorize the religious life uh, as being a life in community. Um, well, sorry, but the religious life isn't necessarily a life in community. The model of religious life is the holy family in the same way that it is the model of married life. Uh, St. Joseph, Our Lady and Our Lord were a family like any other Christian family but also they were religious and lived the evangelical councils. Both St. Joseph and Our Lady were, uh, we have reason to believe, members of the Essene community who took 
the evangelical vows, what subsequently became the evangelical vows. And those evangelical vows are not some arbitrary creation of the church, which you will find a lot of clericalists saying that it, they are, that they can therefore be dissolved by the church because they've been created by the church. No, they haven't. They were created by God and nobody else. Uh, and the reason why is because they are at the absolute essence and quintessence of Christianity and of Christian religion. Why? Because those three evangelical councils consisting of poverty, chastity, and obedience are entered into as a state of life by religious as a standing contradiction of worldliness. And the, the, the prince of worldliness Sex, is money and power. Standard. Exactly, which is, of course, uh, the, the prince of worldliness is Satan. Worldliness being, as Sebastian rightly says, sex, money, and power. Uh, and uh, those are the, if you like, paradigms of worldliness. Not that there's anything wrong with sex, money, and power in, the, in and of themselves. They can be very fruitful. But where they become the, your dominant aim and desire, they are disordered. And the aim of the uh, evangelical councils is to counter that disorder and bring it back to God. So this is not simply some creation of the church to make uh, a class of people who are, if you like, uh, sort of um, religious social workers at the service of the church, which frankly a lot of uh, Catholics these days think religious are, including, I might add, a lot of religious themselves who have no idea about their own vocation. It is a, the living of the very core and center of the Christian life. And it's not something confined to religions. Uh, everybody, including, including the seculars, uh, i.e. ourselves, must also embrace the same spirit. Uh, we, don't, we don't live it as, in, as a profession. We don't take those vows and live them in the full sense, but we still live them. So we exercise moderation in the use of those three worldly powers and functions. And we use it's, them with, with moderation in precisely the same way that the uh, religious of the Catholic Church eschew them. And so, uh, uh, and obviously the opposite of, uh, uh, of, uh, of concupiscence of uh, the flesh is... Uh, chastity, uh, uh, concupiscence of the eyes, poverty, in other words, the opposite of desiring wealth for its own sake, and the opposite of the concupiscence of power, what, what is called the pride of life by uh, the, the ancients, is the spirit of obedience. Another thing that is completely misunderstood, not least by clericalists, obedience is a hierarchy. At the top of the hierarchy is God. At the bottom is the rest of us. And in between, there is a ordered hierarchy. Uh, and part of clericalism is to believe that obedience means obedience not to God, but to the clergy. Obedience, ultimately, to the chief priest, which is the Pope. And so a lot of Catholics think, well, if the Pope says, jump, your reaction should be, how high? Not... Is that a just order? 
which should be the reaction of every Catholic, but just do it because he's the Pope. Now, the logic of that form of clericalism is that if the Pope tells you to go and murder your grandmother, you go and do it. Well, of course, you don't do it because that would be disobeying God, who is the real person at the apex of the hierarchy, not the Pope. The Pope is to be a man. He is not God. And there are 10 commandments, the natural law, the natural moral law, one of which says thou shalt do no murder. Uh, so if you were to obey a prelate or an archbishop or a bishop or a pope who went and told you to murder somebody, you would be committing an extremely grave sin. So would that prelate or that bishop or that pope for daring to order you to commit something which he should know and probably does know is clean contrary to the will of God. So obedience is a hierarchy at which the top of which is God. And be ye never so high in the church, God is above you. The late Lord Denning used to say of English law, be ye never so high, the law is above you. Well, that's true, but above the law is God. And the same applies within the church. But you would be surprised the number of people who get muddled about this. So if a prelate, a priest, a bishop orders you or requires you or tries to persuade you to do something which is contrary to the natural law, to the Ten Commandments, or indeed to the teachings of the church, the answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is because God is above them. That is the proper understanding of obedience. But it is surprising how few Catholics understand it. And in my view, part of the reason for their failure to understand the proper meaning of obedience is clericalism because they have been persuaded that the clergy are a substitute for their own conscience. Uh, and it's, that's the reason why it is not only an error and possibly a heresy, but a disease. It's actually a disease, a, a spiritual disease, which saps away and rots the conscience of the ordinary Catholic, which is why so many Catholics now uh, are quite happy to abandon uh, teachings of the faith, practices of the faith, and even moral practices, so that you get people like Biden, Nancy Pelosi in the United States are quite happy to endorse the view of uh, being in favour in certain circumstances, and indeed very wide circumstances, of crimes like abortion, moral crimes like abortion, and no doubt euthanasia and other crimes as well because they have lost the sense of proper obedience to the teachings of the Catholic Church. And they have kidded themselves that if Bishop so-and-so says, well, well, don't worry too much about that, because he's a cleric, it's okay. That's clericalism in its uh, nastier form and most corrosive form. Uh, I could give lots of other examples. I'm sure Sebastian can too. But it's a very serious problem in the church today. Well, I, I think I think this point about um, about law and the primacy of law is an extremely important one. Um, Jay, as Jamie put it, uh, God is above the law. Um, that well, that is true, but in a sense, it's also not true in that God is the law. The 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 the, the this is one of the things that's. Uh, a lot a lot of people will say for example that um uh morality um uh is 
uh, law must reflect morality, something like that, right? That, that law cannot be immoral, so it must reflect morality. Well, that might be the case at the level of state law uh, and legislation, but actually law is prior to morality because um, all, all uh, morality uh, takes its, uh, its determinant from whatever is the order that God has bestowed upon the universe. And that order it ultimately is reasoned up to the eternal law, so, which is the law of God's own nature, uh, nature divine nature. So, so actually all reality must be traced back ultimately to the eternal law. And this is why when you're dealing with people who think of law as like uh, something like a game of Tetris, it, they're, they're, it's blocks that you can move around. You're, you're, you're a kind of power over the top of it and you can move the law around so, so, so as to um, eventually get whatever happens to be uh, the, the desire of your appetite. When you're dealing with people like that, it is, it is like Jamie said, it, it, it is a disease because it's it, it, essentially what, you, what, what you're facing is megalomania. Um, and that's, that is a very, very uncomfortable situation to be in. Now, uh, to, to, I mean, to be subject to that. And of course, part of the problem here is, and I know that Theo, you and I have talked about this before, it's the, it's the, conf it's the conflating of authority and power. Um, to, to have uh, authority, yes, is hierarchical in the way that Jamie said, but authority is also a kind of burden, right? Uh, uh, when, uh, when you um, have more and more authority, you have greater and greater culpability. You, you, are, you are more and more restricted because, because you have um, a greater remit of agency and operation on account of your uh, authority. You're also increasingly subject to the law, right? So, so, so authority is a way of intensifying your capacity to serve. That's what authority actually is. Um, this has been completely lost. And, and you know, when you, uh, you mentioned uh, an exchange between uh, some bishops that has recently been uh, leaked, um, uh, whose names we, we won't mention for the time being. Uh, but, you know, the, these phrases of, of we have the power to, you know, this is, you're dealing with people who are suffering from megalomania and they don't actually know how to distinguish between authority and power and they don't understand what it is to be a servant of a higher law and 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 for those who have to who are subject to such persons and have to navigate their way through such a climate um it's it's a uh, you know that that is a terrible situation to be in. Uh, one one thing about this, uh, as you know, I'm a I'm a fan of Edmund Burke, and I particularly like his reflections on the relationship or, or the opposition between law and arbitrary power. And one of the things that um, uh, Edmund Burke says is that 
because because he he argues exactly in this classical natural law way that natural law is the human participation in the eternal law, which is the law of God's own divine nature. And so he says that when you're dealing with people who have an attitude toward law, that law is their means by which to exercise their arbitrary power, what you're dealing with is, is people who are practical atheists, right? Their, their concept of the law means that, that their life testifies to the non-existence of God. Right, because they're not subjecting themselves to the law of God. So, so he he thinks that it's um, that 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 this behaviour is practical atheism, and uh, and that's why he has that wonderful phrase, which um, which I, I I referred to in in my essay on Traditionis Custodis uh, that that uh, the exercise of arbitrary power is wholly satanic. It is a it is a non servian Yeah, I agree. Um, it's is yeah. Uh, it's often said uh, by historians and completely wrongly um, uh, that um, the uh, movement away from the rule of Catholic states was a movement away from arbitrary monarchs utter nonsense. Uh, the Catholic states were among the least arbitrary of states if they were truly Catholic. And of course, not all of them were. And one could name some egregious examples of people who were not um, down the, the centuries, uh, Henry VIII. But not just those who broke away from the church, uh, but even within the church. The Emperor Joseph II was arbitrary, was not Catholic. Um, Louis XIV, often held up by many Protestants as any, uh, an example of a Catholic monarch, was a very bad Catholic monarch who did not follow the proper understanding of Catholic teaching in the political sphere. Um, and they, these are often held up as examples. But even they were not completely arbitrary in the exercise of their power. They had limits to their power. Uh, and the idea that limits to power is some modern invention invented by the French Revolution and uh, nothing can be further than the truth. And in fact, what we see increasingly in our own age, largely a result of principles that came to the fore during the French Revolution, is not less arbitrary power, but much more arbitrary power. Uh, and nothing could be much more arbitrary than Nazism or communism. These are inventions of the modern age. Now, um, we, Sebastian quite rightly analyzes these principles philosophically, which is understandable, he's a philosopher. Uh, but we also need to translate them into the speech of ordinary men, uh, because not most men are not philosophers and, and don't always understand what philosophers' definitions mean. Um, putting it simply, as a result of clericalism in part, uh, but for other influences as well, many people think that the Pope can ignore the law of the church. I've heard it, I've heard it said by people. Oh, well, he's the Pope. He can just ignore the canon law. No, he cannot. Uh, because if he did, he would not be a man uh, uh, acting lawfully. He would be lawless. And the, the personification of lawlessness is not the Pope, is not Christ, but Antichrist. And he's often called the lawless man uh, or the man of lawlessness. 
Uh, and uh, that is, by the way, why a lot of Protestants think the Pope is Antichrist, or used to, they don't nowadays, because they thought completely wrongly that he had this arbitrary power to override his own laws. He does not. He must obey the law like everybody else. Now, it's true that he can change the law very much easier than some other uh, rulers can. I'm talking about the canon law of the church, not the um, temporal civil laws. But only insofar as it does not defy the constant teaching and practice of the Catholic Church. And what's more, until he does change the law, he must obey his own laws. Because if he doesn't, then he is arbitrary. That really is arbitrary power. And arbitrary power, as, as Sebastian quite rightly says, is satanic. Uh, and, uh, and yet it often happens. Human beings being what they are. Uh, and it doesn't just happen to Soviet communist dictators or Nazi dictators. It can happen in the church as well. Uh, and uh, we can see plenty of examples of that. Um, now, the reason we speak of uh, the power, the clerical powers within the church as the hierarchy is because it is a hierarchy. And indeed, we also have a hierarchy within the temporal order within the civil powers of the state. Uh, and that is absolutely essential. Hierarchy is essential if we're going to have true freedom. And here's why, and this is something that is so often misunderstood by modern man. If you don't have hierarchy and instead have egalitarianism, which is the ostensible aim of communism and the ostensible aim of a lot of political minds and activists in our age, you will often hear politicians saying, oh, we've got to have equality, we've got to have egalitarianism. If you have absolute egalitarianism, because philosophically there is a sense in which we are all equal, but we are not all equal in the body politic. Neither do we want to be. Here's why. If we are all absolutely equal, then to whom do we apply for redress of grievance against our neighbor. Nobody, because there's nobody above us. If there's nobody above us, how do we get redress of our, of our grievance? If my neighbor steals my car, how do I get my car back? There being nobody above me to whom I can appeal. No court, because a court would be above us. No judge, because a judge would be above us. No jury, because a jury would be above us. We're all absolutely equal. Well, there is only one answer as to how I'm going to get my car back. And that is, I'm going to get all my fellow equals, who are my friends, to come along armed with whatever they can lay their hands on and threaten to beat up my neighbor until he hands my car back. That is the result, inevitably, of egalitarianism. Because if there is nobody to appeal to above you, then you have no other means of get redress of a grievance save force, brute force. And in other words, might is right, not justice is right. And might is right is the very definition of anarchy, of chaos, of the lack of freedom and of peace and of a stable society. That is why we need hierarchy, because we need somebody above us to whom we can appeal for redress of grievance. Normal hierarchies in the state are um, uh, the, 
most classically the, the courts, magistrates, judges, uh, uh, Supreme Court, and so on, but also the police, also uh, our employers, also uh, uh, our politicians, our local authorities, and so on and so on. These are all hierarchies. Without but those... Jamie, the, the, Jamie we do, the thing is that we don't... Uh, egalitarian regimes don't have the uh, those are equal settlements that you're describing what e egalitarian regimes end up with are the equals and the equalizers and you well, have a very and you have that's a very true short but then, but then if, you, if you think about it that's a logical consequence of might is right isn't it because well, if, it, if, if if in egalitarianism might is right because there's nobody else to appeal to what then happens is and this is really what i'm getting at i think you agree we agree is that uh, the mighty then rule so bringing this back to, to clericalism, that's what we've got in the church now. What you've yes. just described. That's just what I was going to say. We've, we've just, flattened just the church. That. Yeah. So in other words, when, when you have bishops and archbishops and even popes disobeying or defying or ignoring the law of the church, then you have no law and you have no hierarchy. What you have is a parcel of bullies who, ignoring the law, simply impose their own will. And if there are enough of them, or if they have enough power, uh, then they will use that power to enforce their will upon others, regardless of the law. And this is just uh, another example of might is right. And, and there are always the people who are talking about an egalitarian age in the church. A, sy yes. a synodal uh, a, a synodal church, a collegial church. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all using the language of uh, equality as long as they can be the equalizers. Uh, what they want is a church full of equals <coughs> over which they preside as the equalizers. And that, is a, that is a really awful situation to be in. I think that's a very, that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, equalizer. There's, there's a um, rather good... Uh, a uh, series of films, a couple of films called The Equalizer. And this uh, played by a famous American actor who, who's actually rather good. Um, but what is it that this equalizer does? Well, uh, he finds criminals, or they find him, and he beats them up, beats the hell out of them. Uh, and, uh, and so saves the day for some innocent person. Well, that's all very well if you're saving the day for an innocent person. But that's not how society should be run. Society should be run by having the organs of state, justice, um, courts, police, governments, authority, hierarchy, to protect the freedom of individuals. It should not rely upon some uh, extremely uh, uh, energetic, muscle-bound Superman or Batman who, uh, who, who is a substitute for the normal organs of state. So whilst it makes a jolly good film, and we're all on the side of Mr. Equalizer because he beats up the bad guys, that is, you cannot run a society along those lines. Because what happens is the bad guys get together and, and murder the Equalizer and eventually take society over. Now, uh, communism, which purports to be a, a, a system designed to uh, uh, introduce egalitarianism uh, and to make everybody equal, does precisely the opposite in exactly the way that Sebastian has, has described. 
what happens is that those who are exercising the levers of power become the equalizers, and the rest of us are the equalized. And the equalizers use their their uh, illegal powers to uh, subdue and to force the rest of us to do their will. So that uh, the egalitarianism, which is represented by communism, is a very Acmean definition of disorder, chaos, anarchy, injustice, brutality, murder, and all the things that we associate with communism. Uh, I, and yet there, I are just, still, just... there are still some people who say, oh, well, you know, communism is really, uh, uh, it doesn't always work in practice. But, you know, the idea is very good. No, the idea is pure poison. Uh, it's interesting that if you look at early uh, communist uh, regimes, a lot of work is put into sh demonstrating to the people that the regime is an authentic expression of the Marxist doctrine. A huge amount of work goes into this. They employ very serious intellectuals within society. They have a massive industry of disseminating essays. They have uh, various speakers. They have artists. They have a massive propaganda uh, machine. This is, uh, this is very typical of early, um, early years in communist regimes. Later years in communist regimes, they just don't care anymore. What they have is a quivering, shaking population, and they say, this is what we're going to do, or we're going to destroy you. And it's very interesting. Uh, uh, half a century ago, in the Catholic Church, huge effort was put into all of the revolutionary actions that were taking place in the church, the revolution in the liturgy, the revolution in, in homiletics, in, in what, what was called pastoral liturgy, uh, all, all of this stuff, all this, this revolutionary stuff. There was a huge propaganda machine connected to it. And, um, and you had all of these liturgical archaeologists talking about how this was in continuity with the early worship of the church and all of this stuff, which has all turned out to be garbage, um, but, but was uh, at least plausible at the time because a tradition had developed of being overly dependent, perhaps, on on. on late scholastic and seminary manuals and so people weren't really familiar with early church history or the fathers or so on so so it was it was plausible to a lot of people but there was but but that's all gone now We're, if 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 liturgical changes take place in the church today um the the holy father or whoever his special delegate happens to be this month simply says this is what we're doing, and we don't have to give you an explanation for why we're doing it. This is exactly what happened with Traditionis Custodes. The, the, uh, the Holy Father said, um, I've decided I don't like you. I don't have to give reasons, and I'm going to create the conditions to make you disappear. It's, it, it, this, is a, this is gulag mentality. Mm. And... Um, uh, and he was clearly pressed to give some kind of uh, accompanying letter, which offered no explanation as well. Uh, in fact, that uh, accompanying letter simply said that he had got information from his brother bishops from around the world on uh, just how um, ghoulish and ghastly the, the traditionalists really were. 
and he was taking action. But the information with which he was provided, he has not made accessible to anyone. So, so th now this is, th forget the romantic days of Trotsky. This is Stalin, uh, uh, this is Stalin's behavior. Um, and, and so we're seeing, again, we're seeing the exact same pattern of the egalitarian ideology uh, coming to a state of eating itself within the, uh, the context of, of, of the Catholic hierarchy. And for those who love the Catholic Church, it's jolly sad to watch. I quite, quite I entirely agree. And uh, um, uh, <laughs> communism, which is based upon egalitarianism, but is like all egalitarianism, not equal at all, because you can't have perfect equality. You don't even have equality in heaven, uh, let alone here on earth. Um, and that was, if you remember, satirized by George Orwell when he said, uh, when the uh, the um, the pigs were 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 criticized by the rest of the animals, um, the um, the pigs replied, "Well, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others." Well, that's what you end up getting with getting if you uh, if you aim at egalitarianism. Communism ends up therefore being simply a form of gangsterism. Is ruled by bullies, toughs, thugs, and criminals. Well, clericalism, whilst it doesn't start out as egalitarianism, it starts out as a form of, um, as Sebastian said, um, Gnostic hierarchy, begins to take on the mantle of those apparatchiks of communism who ruled without any rule and um, without any law, and were simply lawless, arbitrary powers. Um, and clericalism is now going down the same route because it's reaching into extremes, uh, whereby it ignores laws, it ignores um, rules, uh, and acts arbitrarily. In so doing, the clericalism of the modern Catholic Church is rapidly also becoming a form of gangsterism ruled by bullies, toughs, and people who have no care or concern about others, uh, who just think that they are there to serve them. Now, the definition of tyranny is when the government, whether it's a spiritual government or a temporal government, whether it's the church or the state, governs not in the interest of the common good, but for their own personal interest. And we are rapidly approaching a situation as a result of clericalism, among other things, in the Catholic Church, where the clerical hierarchy are not ruling for the common good, but for themselves and for their own personal advantage. And this is, um, I won't say it's an entirely unprecedented situation in the Catholic Church. I dare say examples can be found of it happening in the past. But its universality is, in my view, unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it before. No, I agree. It's it's the fact that it's uh, the universal culture of the hierarchy that is uh, unprecedented, I think. And what is also astonishing is they can't see it. Now, you know, Stalin could see it. He knew he was being a gangster and a thug. He liked being a gangster and a thug. He liked watching American 1930s gangster films because he himself was a gangster and a thug. And he could see it, but our uh, clerical 
I won't call them gangsters because they're not actually murdering people, but upper Rajiks, they can't see it. They, they have so deluded themselves that they actually think that what they are doing when they ignore the law, the canon law of the church and the rules of the church and the rules of natural justice and sometimes the law of the land, they actually think that what they're doing is right and proper and is God's work and is the job of a cleric. Now, that, to my mind, takes a degree of self-delusion on a broad and wide scale among the clergy of the Catholic Church that we have never seen before. But Jamie, I think I think the the analogy that you, that you've been fleshing out with uh, with communism uh, again, you, you there's another analog here, which I think is quite interesting because um, Marxism is both a, a Gnostic hierarchy and an egalitarian ideology. It's always yeah. both at the same time because for for Marx. Um, the, the everyone was equal and everyone was heirs to the same uh, emancipation, social uh, class um, uh, emancipation. But somehow, only he had that secret knowledge and only he could offer it to the masses. That's a very good and, point. And the problem is, they didn't want it. In the, in the, actually, the, the uh, old English socialism was far more the, the kind of socialism of George Orwell, who hated communism, was far more uh, convincing for uh, the, the British working class because it actually meant that they could take pride in their working class culture and heritage rather than be emancipated from it. In the Communist Manifesto that Marx wrote with Engels, um, it's the, it, you find the only passage where Marx actually describes what life will look like for the emancipated proletariat after the revolution. And he says, what they'll do is they will get up in the morning and go fly fishing. Then they will uh, go uh, hunting with hounds in the afternoon. Then they'll attend to their vegetable patch. And then they'll all gather for dinner and enjoy literary criticism. So he, his view was that emancipation... We lost him. I think we've lost you, uh, Sebastian. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Uh, you, you were saying emancipation. Yes, that uh, I hope you can hear me all right. Uh, that uh, that emancipation would come not so much through the elimination of the bourgeoisie, like he said, but actually through the universalizing of bourgeois culture. And they didn't want it, but only he. The, 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 the bishop of the Gnostic uh, uh, communist priesthood could, could, could uh, disseminate this knowledge to them. And, it, and if they still didn't want it, they would die. And, the, and, and this is, uh, so, so Marxism always moves as both an egalitarian and a Gnostic uh, ideology. And, and uh, I, this is why I think what we're seeing with um, I pray the final years of this intense clericalism within the church has a very interesting uh, correlation with the uh, with the history of of communism and its and its Marxist uh, intellectual structure. Yeah, 
I'm quite glad that we've br- brought that analogy out, actually, because I haven't given it much thought before, but it, it, it seems to fit very well with what's going on. Yeah, and, and in the same way that communist apparatchiks talked about equality endlessly and about how they uh, in their society had achieved it, uh, whilst practising the very opposite with the consummate hypocrisy we are gradually beginning to see something similar creep into the Catholic Church via the medium of clericalism. So that you will see popes and bishops and, and, and clergy and uh, talking about equality and about equal rights and all these other things that are uh, so much associated with the communists and with the left generally, whilst practicing the very opposite, whilst stomping on people's rights, whilst flatly ignoring not only the law of the very church of which they are meant to be representatives, but of the law of God, of the law of nature, of natural justice, and even the civil law itself, by covering up, for example, clerical pederasty and clerical paedophilia in the most disgusting way that uh, is just utterly shameful in a, in, 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 a, in a Christian church, particularly the Catholic church, which... Uh, uh, which we believe to be the true church. Now, <laughs> the fact that it's the true church does not mean that its clerical representatives are going to be well-behaved and good. Not at all. In fact, as uh, any historian will tell you, the origin of every heresy in the Catholic Church was always a cleric, with almost no exceptions. Um, but, you know, this is something that is now lost to the ordinary Catholic uh, people. And in a lot of cultures where the lay leadership has been removed, usually by force, by occupation by a foreign power or by a foreign religion. That is where you tend to get the extremes of clericalism. The two examples that spring to mind, in my mind, are Ireland and Poland. Uh, Poland caught between the Protestant Germans and the Orthodox Russians uh, and living on a flat plain were frequently invaded and frequently had their lay leadership decimated. Um, and the result, the, con- the, the concomitant result, was an increasing power of the clergy as being the local representative of learning, of uh, the ability to negotiate with the political powers, of a sort of centre of resistance. The same happened in Ireland when the uh, Protestant establishment, or so-called ascendancy, tried to stamp out the Catholic religion, or at the very least to private of, of its human of its members of human rights, uh, and in particular destroyed the old Catholic aristocracy of Ireland so that they now no longer live in Ireland. They now live over the rest of the continent of Europe. All the old great Catholic families of Ireland now live in France, Spain, Austria, Germany, Russia, Poland, but not in Ireland. And the result was that um, their place was taken by uh, the educated class who remained, namely the clergy, and to some extent school teachers, um, but mostly the clergy, which is why in Poland and Ireland you have serious clericalism. Uh, uh, and now, conversely, you getting a reaction against clericalism so that you now get very severe anti-clericalism, which is also uh, uh, another form of disease. Uh, and I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, it's gone 
fairly unnoticed, I'm afraid, in the media. But um, the Polish bishops uh, recently had a, a visit to the Holy See uh, to explain why it is that recent reports in Poland have indicated that there has been very serious problems with clerical uh, abuse there as well. Now everybody thinks of the Poles and Poland as an sort of exemplar of the Catholic Church. Uh, and in some respects they are and historically have been, but because of, in my view, of partly because of clericalism, they're now experiencing, perhaps not on quite the same scale, uh, but they're now experiencing issues with clerical abuse, such as has existed in, in other countries. Now, Ireland had a very serious problem with clerical abuse. In my view, this is partly due to the serious error of clericalism. Likewise, in the United States, um, one has to honestly admit that it tends to be in those areas of the United States where uh, the Hibernian, i.e. Irish, element have predominated, not because they're Irish, something to do with their race, something to do with their, uh, what race they belong to. It's because there was and has been this um, strand of, of clericalism, very strong clericalism in Irish culture ever since the ascendancy got rid of the Catholic nobility and aristocracy and leadership in Ireland. So there's another example of how clericalism is extremely damaging, corrosive, and uh, uncatholic uh, uh, in those two countries, and no doubt in other countries as well. Um, but uh, it's it's not it shows no sign of abating unless in our time. I so, think um, it, it's worth because uh, we've been go we've been going an hour and a half now. I think um, it, it might be worth just uh, saying for the record because uh, I think I can speak for uh, Jamie as well here. Um, our our lack of patience with clericalism is not uh, in any way a hostility toward clerics or the clerical hierarchy or the priesthood in fact it's it's precisely our love for the catholic priesthood that causes us to be so impatient with the corruption of that priesthood which is clericalism uh and i i, I hope that that has uh, come across in this uh discussion exactly um uh and it, george Orwell once said um of the expression, my country, right or wrong, that it was as ridiculous as saying, my mother drunk or sober. Um, no, you don't want your mother to be drunk. You want her to be sober. And not my country, right or wrong. You want your country to be right, not wrong. And in a very exactly the same way, we want our clergy to be good, not bad. To be fine examples of uh, what the uh, Catholic clergy should be, not bad examples. And that is the reason, quite rightly, as Sebastian says, why we are so exercised about the era of clericalism. By the way, it's not the only era uh, in the modern church. There are many, many others. But it is one that is often not discussed and not considered. Uh, and we are particularly concerned about it because uh, out of uh, love and respect for our clergy, we want this era not to infect the body of the clergy of the Catholic Church. We want them to be the great exemplars that in the best parts of the history of the Catholic Church, they have been. Um, can I just say as well, um, for those who are listening, um, 
when the Catholic balance between the lay and the clerical works best, then it ha uh, the, the, the result is to produce the best fruits of civilization that the world has ever seen. Uh, we in Europe and those who stem uh, from European civilization are the benefactors of a culture that was developed, a civilization that was developed out of the Catholic Church. There's no getting away from that. So, you know, medicine, art, science, philosophy, government, law, constitution, uh, art, architecture, poetry, literature, you name it, all of those uh, which went to make up European civilization have their origins in the Catholic Church and in Christianity. And it's no accident that the rest of the world looks to, and has historically looked to, perhaps less so now, Europe as a source of civilization and has tried to emulate it. Why? Well, it's got something. What is that something? Or whatever it is, its origins are in Christianity. So uh, when the Catholic polity, when the Catholic system is working well, it produces fruits that the whole of the rest of the world admire and wish to emulate. So it's in everybody's interest that the Catholic Church gets it right and not wrong. Um, let me give an example. Uh, it's often said by Protestant controversialists in England that King James II was an arbitrary monarch who overrode the laws. This is utter nonsense. And he was not thrown off his throne for doing so. He was thrown off his throne for being Catholic. Now, in particular, he was uh, dethroned because he passed two declarations or declared two declarations of indulgence, which established religious liberty in these kingdoms. Because at that time, there wasn't any religious liberty. You had uh, the opportunity, if you wish to serve as a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, uh, a member of parliament, a civil servant, or any of the primary jobs in the state, you had to be an Anglican, a communicating Anglican. And if you weren't, none of those occupations were open to you. And James II, in his Declaration of Indulgence, reintroduced religious liberty, not only for Catholics, but for uh, dissenting Protestants and even for Jews and Muslims. How many people know that? None. <laughs> whom one would meet ordinarily in the street. Only those who have uh, understood the history of that period, and even many of them don't understand it. Uh, and this was our last Catholic monarch. When he was overthrown, religious liberty went with him, and uh, the obligation to be a communicating member of the Church of England or in Scotland of uh, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland was restored and you could not occupy any office of state, even be a doctor or a teacher or, or a, a lawyer, unless you were a communicating member of the state church. That is not religious liberty by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so, but you know, this is not widely understood and people think that, uh, that uh, King James II was uh, a tyrant who was removed and liberty was rest restored when he went. Quite the opposite. So there's just one example of failure to understand our own history.
and I could give many other examples of failures to understand uh, our European history uh, so that we have made ourselves easy prey for errors. And among Catholics, one of those errors is clericalism. Let me give you another example. Uh, it's often said of the old empire, Holy Roman Empire that was at the center of Europe, which occupied most of the German lands and half of Italy, parts of Eastern Europe, and even bits of France, that it was um, an ungovernable, tottering, weak uh, political structure that was bound to, to fail. And that is said by modern historians because they don't understand the idea of subsidiarism or subsidiarity, which is the principle that government should be uh, delegated or subsidiarized to the lowest possible level so that more and more things are done locally, not centrally, not nationally, not supranationally. The reverse view is the view introduced the, uh, well, before the French Revolution by people like Louis XIV, but particularly at the French Revolution, that everything should be centralized. Everything should be ruled from the center. And that ultimately means, well, let's have a world government because that's the most centralized form of government you can have. It's also the most oppressive because if you are governed by people who are as far away from your locality as they could be, they're not going to understand your local concerns and needs. So we've reached the situation where in our modern age, uh, <clears throat> somebody like President Joe Biden or Bill Gates is as inaccessible as, it's, uh, uh, as you could imagine in a way that was simply impossible in the Middle Ages where local rulers were much more accessible and you, uh, in many cases, could meet them walking along the street and remonstrate with them if you felt they weren't governing you properly. Try doing that with the, with the President of the United States. You'll be uh, uh, picked up by the Secret Service or the FBI and thrown into prison before you can say no. You can't even get close to Bill Gates unless you happen to be invited. Also, co contrary to what rationalists assume, um, centralization is actually the weakest model as well. Um, they, they think they can strengthen the polity uh, by centralizing all power, but it's actually the weakest. You, you cannot get a grip on the situation from a centralized seat of power. Now, this is concerning going back to the topic because it's the model we've adopted in the church. Just Again, going back, going back to Traditionis Custodis, very interesting that the Holy Father um, says to the bishops, you are uh, to direct everything concerning the liturgy uh, in your diocese. They're very great, totally subsidiary. But then he says but you can't make a single decision on this matter without asking me first. So where is the subsidiarity then? Yeah. He, he, he gives it and then takes it away with the next hand. Uh, and, 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 so, and this is just one example of a pattern that's emerged in the church, where actually subsidiarity is not only uh, a principle of Catholic social doctrine for the temporal arena, but also for the spiritual hierarchy exactly and it has disappeared 
uh, and uh, particularly under the the reign of the current uh, pontiff. So, um, and and it's weakening the church. It's it, it, that's the point. It's not strengthening the church. I was just going to say exactly that, uh, Sebastian. That um, that centralist view, which is so opposed to the subsidiarist view of the past, has now become, thanks partly and perhaps in even in large part to clericalism, the dynamic model of governance by spiritual governance by the uh, hierarchy of the church in the church. And it is considered now quite normal for this, for everybody to refer decisions to the Pope in a way that would simply never have happened in the past. Of course, modern technology makes it easy to do so. You can get an email and get an answer. But it still is a completely false model because uh, if you were at the center of an organism like the Catholic Church and everybody was entitled to send you an email, you'd never answer them all. It's just simply not possible. If value, you could literally have daily tens of millions of emails and, and you would never be able the church to afford staff to answer that. That in itself should tell us there's something wrong with a model that is set so centralized where decisions are all made centrally. Now that is not the Catholic way. The Catholic way is subsidiarity, but mm. subsidiarity is also not understood. It's a, for example, often touted by members of parliament of the European parliament, uh, little realizing that the idea of having a central government of Europe in Brussels is of itself anti-subsidiarist. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, there may be arguments for having some uh, central body uh, for various reasons that can't be otherwise resolved, for example, negotiating treaties. But the idea that you were governed from one city governing the whole of Europe is completely mm. anti-subsidiarist. Whereas, as I gave the example of the old empire, which, which uh, was regarded as tottering and weak and all the rest of it, in reality, it wasn't. It was a patchwork of small and large states where power was devolved to the lowest reasonable level because of a deliberate policy of subsidiarism. It wasn't weakness. It wasn't um, inability to centralize. It wasn't uh, a failure to grasp the need to have a central government. They could easily have done that uh, because after all, it had been done so many other places and so many times in the past, in the pagan past, there were attempts to do it at the Renaissance, um, kings like Henry VIII, and Francis I of France tried to do it, and later on Louis XIV, but uh, it's not the Catholic way. The Catholic way is to subsidiarize to the local level. And actually, this is makes the system much more accessible, accountable, and the people more consultable yeah. than modern, even than modern democracy, and certainly more than the modern democracy thinks. Uh, that it can do. Um, but instead of the church teaching this fundamental principle of Catholic social uh, uh, social teaching and social organization, it's doing the opposite. It's emulating the secular world and centralizing. And this too is another evil fruit of clericalism. It's not just clericalism, to be fair. It's a failure to understand subsidiarity. It's a failure to understand Catholic social teaching. It's a failure to understand Catholic political teaching, but it is also an ill-cankered fruit 
of clericalism. Uh, and it's, as Sebastian rightly says, weakening the church. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Some fascinating nuggets. I'd like to um, elicit your, your final comments uh, for what's been a, a very insightful broadcast. Uh, firstly, it, it strikes me that, to return to an earlier point you made, Mr. Bogle, that one of the most, the most heinous eruption of this gangsterism, of the lack of a redress uh, of grievance, was, is the clerical abuse crises. Um, the disdain with which natural justice was treated, the recourse to therapeutic, the therapeutic over uh, the, the civil law um, evinces a disdain for the temporal sphere, I think. Um, we have a mutual friend, uh, Dr. Alan Thimmis, who wrote a very good essay for the Josias, which I'd recommend to our listeners called uh, Lay Clericalism and Clerical Laicism. Um, and he makes the, the point there that the remedy for clericalism is, or one of the remedies is the recovery of the lay apostolate. Um, so I'd like to just ask you uh, for your, your closing comments about how we, uh, we remedy uh, this, this error. Um, well, it's, it's not going to be easy. Uh, the, the lay apostolate is not as Sebastian rightly points out, to be little clergy and to uh, take up the collection and uh, maybe read the lesson and uh, maybe uh, welcome people at the door of the church, uh, all of which are very, you know, no doubt necessary roles, but they are really light years away from the, the reality of the lay vocation. The lay vocation is to conform the temporal order to the teaching of Christ. And that means the teaching of Christ's justice, freedom, peace, morality, responsibility. Uh, in other words, to make uh, uh, of society the best that we can make of it. Um, to that extent, we, uh, we are trying to do the same as every other ideology or, or religion. The difference is that we think ours is right, uh, as they all do as well, but, uh, um, there can only be one true religion, but uh, uh, that is the lay vocation. Now, of course, that's going to be very difficult in a, in a secular society, but we have to continue to work on that. Uh, but I think also we need to have more discussions like this to analyze the, uh, the problem of clericalism so that not only the laity in the church, the, the, the broad uh, faithful generally, but also the clergy themselves can understand the nature of the problem and avoid it. Well, uh, I agree with everything that uh, Jamie just said. I would say that the temporal order or the temporal power, the political uh, ordering of civil society, obviously um, uh, presupposes the existence of civil society. And civil society is a conglomerate of smaller societies called families. Um, and so one thing we can do uh, right away is to evangelize our families and our communities. That's one thing that we can do right away uh, as, as laypersons. Now, that's not uh, having 
a clerical role subcontracted to us. That's actually what we're supposed to do as lay persons. I, I have heard uh, uh, not too long ago uh, a cleric whom uh, many people, uh, you know, consider to be a, a, one of the better ones, um, say to me, uh, well, uh, the jury's out on whether parents are the primary catechists of their children. Uh, I, really, it's the priest and, and you know, you, you, the catechetical instruction that you might give to your children is something that you receive from the priest. Well, I'm sorry, but it, it, one, it's not true. But even if it were true, um, you don't have enough time with my children to catechize them. Uh, you see them for five minutes a week. Um, you know, also, uh, you didn't give birth to them. You haven't fed them. <laughs> mewling and puking since an early age you don't <laughs> pay for them you don't house them you don't clothe them it's that that that... exactly the same with social workers they have right. the same mentality and it's exactly the same uh centralist um mentality and very very similar to the clericalist mentality Right. So one thing that we can do is is uh, simply take responsibility for what is within our uh, our remit uh, uh, immediately. That is one. Yes, albeit very small step, but it's one small step towards a Christian social order. Um, so I would just encourage laypersons to understand that they already do have a sphere in which they can catechize, evangelize, uh, to 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 establish a culture of devotion, even if it is only within your own household, to, to make very good friends with people who have the same uh, apostolate and know they have that apostolate and enjoy that together. Um, <coughs> and that, that, uh, and join, join associations and clubs, join the Latin Mass Society, join the Catholic Union, jo join, join associations and clubs where you can actually albeit small steps, fulfill the imperatives of the lay apostolate. That's, that, that would be a bit of practical advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great note to finish on. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for a very rich and elucidating discussion. I think the seeds were sown there for future discussions and uh, perhaps we'll be able to do that in the future. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks Thank for having you. us.